All comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika, and me, Maddie. Welcome back to episode two of season two of Professionally Embarrassing. We're really sorry that this episode is coming out a little bit late. That's entirely my fault. Maddie was on the ball. She was ready to record, but I was drowning in work, that thing we do on the side, which is being barristers. Um, And so I didn't have the time at all to prep for this episode and I didn't want us to give you something half-hearted. So we've delayed it by a week, but hopefully we've got a really interesting episode coming up for you. Uh, I'm doing a case on... Practice Direction 12J and on interim contact arrangements, which is something that me and Maddie deal with day in, day out on the front line of the family justice system. Maddie, what have you got for the listeners? I am doing a very interesting, very short new judgment by Mr. Justice Hayden about the relationship between the parents of a severely disabled child who requires care from the local authority and their relationship with the local authority and how that can be rectified if it goes wrong. So something to Something niche, but something to listen out for nonetheless if it ever comes up. Yeah, I'm excited for that. I know everyone's been tweeting about it, but I haven't actually read it myself, so I'm excited to listen to what you have to say. But I'm starting us off this week, and the case I'm going to discuss is called A Child, Creative, brackets, application of PD12J, which was handed down earlier this month. And in episode three of season one, we spent a lot of time talking about the re-HN conjoined appeals that came out earlier this year and about Practice Direction 12J, which is the framework for non-family lawyers by which we look at allegations of domestic abuse in private children law proceedings. And so I thought it would be helpful to have a look at this judgment now, which looks at the application of Practice Direction 12J post the re-HN landscape. I was also being a little bit lazy and I needed to read this case to update my book on Practice Direction 12J, so it does kill two birds with one stone. I thought this was a helpful case to talk about on the pod because it concerns interim decisions around child arrangements. And I think much of what we've discussed so far on this podcast has been about final hearings or cases approaching a final hearing. But so much of the work that Maddie and I do day to day concerns interim arrangements. So the arrangements which act as a holding position until the proceedings conclude and there are final child arrangements. And there are a few things I want to say about that preliminarily before we dive into this judgment. So our loyal listeners will know from our ReHN episode last season that the framework that we use to consider allegations of domestic abuse, as I said, is Practice Direction 12J, which is a 40 paragraph template, as it were, around what to do and what to think about at every stage in proceedings where there are disputed allegations of domestic abuse that are likely to be relevant for the decision making for the children. Private law practitioners should know Practice Direction 12J inside and out. And if you're interested in finding out more, check out my book on the subject, which will be out very soon and I will plug it at some point on the podcast. 
But the situation that we are often faced with at an early stage in proceedings is one parent, their parent A makes allegations against parent B. Parent B is seeking contact with the child. Parent A has alleged domestic abuse and has severely limited or terminated contact and says that the other parent isn't safe to be around. So the parent that isn't seeing the child then lodges an application to see them. And they either lodge an urgent application, maybe because the resident parent is threatening to take the child out of the jurisdiction or some other reason why there's a need for urgency, or the case comes about in its usual way following the usual process to a first hearing dispute resolution appointment, a Fahedra. And at these initial hearings, the parent who isn't seeing the child will likely want arrangements to be put in place so that contact can be set up immediately. But the court is in a really difficult position at that early stage, at those interim hearings, because they are being confronted with allegations of domestic abuse, which may be very, very serious and will almost certainly be relevant to the child's welfare. But they don't know who's telling the truth. They have no idea whether these allegations are true or not. There's been no fact finding hearing yet where the court has heard from the parties and made a determination about who's telling the truth and whether or not there's been abuse. So the court has an incomplete picture and it's being faced with a parent saying, I want to see my child now. The judges and magistrates day in, day out are placed in this difficult position of having to balance the tension between not wanting to facilitate contact that could place a child at risk of harm, but also not wanting to cause the child emotional harm by not facilitating their relationship with the parent that they're not seeing. So it's really, really tough stuff. And that's the context. So off the back of that, let's dive into this particular case. So the case concerned three children who are aged 10, 8 and 5. And the judgment was handed down by His Honour Judge Dancy, who heard the mother's application for permission to appeal and then the substantive appeal against a decision made by a district judge that she returned with the children from the north of England to Dorset um, to spend shared time with their father. And the district judge said if, if the mother didn't do that, if she didn't return the children, he would direct a residence transfer from her to the father. So an extremely draconian order at an interim stage. His Honour Judge Dancy allowed the appeal and he set aside that order. The background to this is the parties married in 2010 in Ireland and then moved to England in 2017. In July 2021, the mother removed the children from the family home in secret. She didn't warn the father. She took the children to a refuge somewhere up north. Father made an application to the court in August seeking the children's return to Dorset and an order preventing them from being removed from Dorset. And he also wanted a child arrangements order regulating the time that they spend with him. And then in September, the mother made cross applications to transfer the proceedings to a court near her and the children and an order preventing the father from removing the children from the UK because apparently he had connections elsewhere, such as South Africa and Ireland. She also sought an order that the children live with her and an order regulating contact. In her application, the mother alleged that father had been controlling, that he'd left the children alone, unsupervised, and that he'd been involved in a sexual assault towards her. So on the 6th of September, there was a remote hearing before a recorder um, who, for anyone that isn't a lawyer, a recorder is a part time fee paid judge. They have the same status as a circuit judge. So you have magistrates, district judges and deputy district judges, circuit judges and recorders, high court judges and so on. And that's the hierarchy. The day before the hearing, the mother filed a statement saying all sorts of things. 
including that she was scared of the father, that he had sought to undermine and control her emotionally, intellectually and physically, that she was receiving help from domestic abuse support services, and notably that he'd been sexually abusive, laying on top of her and holding her down while having sex so she couldn't breathe. And he didn't understand the impact as well of his actions in not telling her that he had been HIV positive for an extremely long time and that she didn't find out until many years into the marriage and after the birth of all three children. The recorder directed safeguarding checks, which are checks completed by CAFCAS as a preliminary action, because he felt like he couldn't make a decision at that hearing without those checks. For non-family lawyers, whenever an application is issued in private law proceedings, CAFCAS does safeguarding checks. They are broad brush checks where CAFCAS speaks to the local authority, to the police, speaks to the parents and provides a letter with its initial advice about the way forward for the court and highlighting what the main risks, concerns and issues are. Ideally, they would be available before the first hearing, but this first hearing was urgent, so CAFCAS hadn't had the time to do that. The recorder didn't make any substantive decisions at that point, but he did note in his judgment that the father, who admitted to this, so this isn't a disputed allegation, lied to the mother about being HIV positive and she didn't find out until seven years into the marriage and after all three children were born, and the recorder described that as a horrendous deception. Rightly so, that is a horrendous deception. Kafkas then filed a letter two weeks later on the 21st of September 2021, and it noted that in 2019, there had been GP and police referrals where the mother reported domestic abuse uh, perpetrated by the father and also physical abuse of the children. Mother told Kafkas that father was controlling and coercive and she had reported rape the previous year, but she didn't press charges. And she said that the police had wanted her to press charges about father lying about being HIV positive. Notably, and we'll come back to this, Kafkas did not speak to the father as part of their safeguarding checks, which they should have. It's not clear why they didn't. It, maybe he didn't pick up the phone. Maybe he wasn't available. Maybe Kafkas ran out of time and didn't get around to it. I, I don't know. Kafkas recommended in their letter that the mother should detail her allegations with a view to there being a fact-finding hearing to determine their truth. And bearing practice direction 12J in mind, Kafkas said, given the allegations made, direct or indirect contact between the children and the father would not be safe at this time. So we come to the judgment under appeal on the 27th of September 2021, some six days later. Interestingly, it was supposed to be before a circuit judge, but it ended up being in front of a district judge who was a more junior judge because of listing reasons. It may be they didn't have an available circuit judge. We're struggling to get any judge at the moment, as other family lawyers will know. No evidence was heard at that hearing. It took place on submissions, which means that the two parties' lawyers gave speeches about what they think should happen. And the hearing took place remotely on Microsoft Teams. The district judge effectively said there is not a shred of evidence to show that it was in these children's best interest to be removed from their home in Dorset to the north. And he was particularly concerned that the schools in Dorset needed to know if the kids were coming back or not. Otherwise, their places would be lost. He was concerned about the huge change in circumstances for the children and the emotional harm which arises out of that, particularly in light of their ages. And he concluded that the children should be returned to area and they should resume attendance at their schools. And the issue of accommodation wasn't something he really addressed. And he sort of said, well, mother can sort that out. She'll have to figure out her accommodation when she comes back to Dorset. And then, as I said earlier, if mother refused to return the children to the area, the judge said that it was inevitable that there should be an order that the children live with the father in the interim, which is 
such a nuclear option to remove the children from their primary carer to the other parent. He said he was conscious of the recommendations of the safeguarding letter, but those were predicated on the mother's allegations and there had been no interview with the father. I'll pause there. Maddie will know it's often the case that the recommendations in the safeguarding letter are predicated on one party's allegations and they are often denied by the other party. Even if the father had been interviewed, it's unlikely he would have said, you know what, mum's right, the allegations are all true, we don't even need to go into this. Kafkas, in my experience, are on the side of caution where there are disputed allegations of domestic abuse, particularly of this seriousness. And yes, the allegations were just mother's word, but the response of the district judge should not have been well, it's just her word, so we'll just brush them under the carpet for now, because it may be that the mother's word turns out to be completely true, and the children could have been placed in a harmful situation with their father. So after judgment was handed down, the parties were left to consider the implications. Father proposed that once the children come back to Dorset, that there be a shared care arrangement. Mother's position was there should be no contact in line with the Kafka's recommendations. The judge agreed with father's proposal of shared care, and he said, Failing mother returning within 48 hours with the children, there would be a transfer of residence to the father on an interim basis whilst, quote, we sort out PD12J in the directions that we can now go through. People can't see Maddie, but she's just open mouthed at this point. The judge also made a prohibited steps order preventing the mother from removing the children to Dorset. Pause again. Practice direction 12J is something that needs to be woven in to all of our analysis as we proceed through the hearing, as we proceed through the case. It's not something that you can just park while the judge makes an interim decision. And then you know what, we'll come back to it as an afterthought. Two days later, after this hearing, Kafkas filed something called a Section 16A risk assessment with the court. They had basically found out about what had happened they said the allegations that the mother had made had been supported by their local authority checks. Mother had now made a report to the police and was about to be interviewed. Father had been spoken to and he accepted that he had withheld his HIV status and Kafkas thought he was somewhat dismissive about it and minimised the impact of it on the mother. And Kafkas said that their advice to the court that contact was not safe had been disregarded. So this is really interesting. Kafkas, rather than just letting the court crack on, is actively intervening to say you completely ignored our professional advice to the court. The family court advisor in the risk assessment said that no concerns had been raised by the father about mother's care. She was in a three bedroom house up north. The children were settled in the refuge. They were attending school. The children were saying that they didn't want contact with the father. And given that there had been no contact for some 10 weeks, the Kafkas officer's view was that it was being introduced in a way which was not safe or child focused. So what was being proposed effectively by the district judge is these children be placed back in school after a six hour journey from wherever they are up north back to Dorset. And then they're picked up by their dad on their first day back for the weekend to have overnight contact with a parent they haven't seen in months, which on any interpretation would leave them really confused and also frightened if mother's allegations are accurate. Even if the allegations were not true and contact was safe, this is a chaotic reintroduction. The family court advisor rightly pointed to practice direction 12J and the expectation that contact should not expose the child or other parent to an unmanageable risk of harm and the increased risk of harm when a victim of domestic abuse seeks to end a relationship. The report recommended that the children should stay where they are until there's a fact-finding hearing before contact could be considered and Kafkas also, to top it all off, had made a child protection referral to the local authority. 
So then on the 30th of September, the matter comes before the appeal judge, His Honour Judge Dancy. My colleague at Transparency Project, Louise Tickle, who's a journalist, attended that hearing and was given permission to publish information about that subject to certain reporting restrictions, which I just thought I'd flag up because open justice in progress, hurrah. We are recording this today when the Transparency Review has just been published and it's phenomenal. It's kind of everything that transparency campaigners have been campaigning for for an extremely long time. We'll probably talk about it in more detail on the next episode when we've had a chance to consider it more fully but I just thought I'd flag that up. At the hearing before his honour judge Dancy he canvassed the possibility of the father moving out of the family home in Dorset and allowing the mother and the children to move back in so that they could stay in the area and carry on at their schools and he also said and we could also put protective measures in place we could get her some injunction so that father can't come around and talk to her. But mother, despite that, said, no, I don't feel safe moving back into the area. He has raped me. He has caused intimate injuries. I'm worried he will kill me, is effectively what she said. Father, perhaps unsurprisingly, says I'm happy to move out if mother wants to come back into area and come back into the family home with the kids. Anyway, so the judge granted permission to appeal and invited the two parties advocates to make their submissions. There were numerous grounds of appeal, and in the interest of time, I'm not going to set out all the discussion about all of them, but the main grounds of appeal were as follows. So the district judge didn't consider practice direction 12J, specifically paragraphs 25 to 27, which concern interim child arrangements before the allegations have been determined. What was being argued on appeal is that effectively those paragraphs of PD12J say a court shouldn't make an interim child arrangements order if the order would expose the child or the other parent to an unmanageable risk of harm. It was also argued on appeal that the judge hadn't properly considered ReHM, the Conjoined Domestic Abuse Appeals, or FNM, which is a judgment we've talked about before on this podcast. It's an excellent judgment by Mr Justice Hayden on coercive and controlling behaviour. And it was also argued on appeal that the judge didn't attach sufficient weight to mother's allegations or the accepted, undisputed fact that the father didn't disclose his HIV status to her. Finally, it was argued on appeal, probably the, the big issue that I think was one of the ones considered, that the judge rejected the recommendations of CAFCAS without a proper basis for doing so and absent any analysis. The judgment sets out what each advocate said on behalf of each party about each ground of appeal, which I'm not going to go through. His Honour Judge Dancy sets out the law on when an appeal should be allowed, which for those who don't know is the test is that the decision was A, wrong, or B, it was so unjust because of a serious procedural or other irregularity. He also sets out lots of other law about PD12J and the relevant case law around domestic abuse. The judge sets out the problem he's faced with in this helpful nutshell. Quote, the acutely difficult question the present appeal poses is the balance to be struck by the court between A, the potential harm identified by PD12J of making orders that may place children at risk of the consequences of domestic abuse, and B, the emotional harm and potential relationship damage that may be caused by unilateral removal a considerable distance away from the family home and cessation of contact. So that's the tension here, isn't it? The tension here is we don't want to cause the children emotional harm by not allowing them to have any relationship with the other parent. But equally, if we facilitate contact, I'll be placing them at risk of harm if that parent is indeed abusive. And the judge says, these are decisions that have to be made on an urgent basis, often with limited and untested information. Get it wrong and the court risks placing children at risk of harm either way. This is a welfare analysis that requires caution, balance and proportionality, which is often not easy to achieve at an interim stage which is very true. I don't envy the judges and magistrates who are in this position, faced with incomplete information, having to work out what is least harmful for these children. 
And his honor judge Dancy suggested during submissions that perhaps the framework of analysis that we use is the one that was proposed by Lord Justice Jackson in a different context of public law care and placement orders in a case called REF. And what he suggests is, A, what is the type of harm that might arise? So for present purposes, putting the mother's case at its highest, what is the type of harm that might arise? B, what is the likelihood of it arising? C, what would be the consequences in terms of severity of harm if it happened? D, can the risks of harm happening be reduced or mitigated so that they are manageable, including in this case by the making of protective measures? E, what does a comparative evaluation of the advantages and disadvantages of each option here, return or not, contact or not, say about the best interests of the children, having regard also to the need to protect a parent vulnerable to abuse? And F, is the outcome proposed proportionate? I think that A to F checklist is super helpful for practitioners at an interim hearing, particularly ones who are representing the party facing the allegations of abuse. If you're saying to the court, look, we understand there are allegations that have yet to be resolved, but we need to balance the competing tensions here. So let's take this step by step and see what the harm could be at its highest if contact did take place. I think that's a really interesting, useful framework that I'm certainly going to try and use moving forward. The judge also goes on to say, although I suggest that for these purposes, the mother's case should be taken at its highest, that doesn't, in my view, mean that the court is bound to accept everything that's said without any sort of critical analysis. The process of identifying the relevant issues for determination and gathering evidence takes time. At the moment, police disclosure locally is taking five to six weeks. And in the meantime, the allegations remain untested. And the judge says the court is entitled, indeed, I would suggest required at an interim stage to consider the circumstances around the allegations, including, and this is another helpful checklist to have in your back pocket at an interim hearing, A, the seriousness of the allegations and the harm that might result, B, whether there is already evidence from other sources which supports or undermines the allegations, C, the consistency or otherwise of the allegations, making allowance for the fact that it is the nature of domestic abuse that accounts are often given piecemeal and incrementally, especially in relation to allegations of sexual abuse, which may be delayed because of embarrassment, shame, or simply thinking I won't be believed. D, possible motivations for making allegations, and E, how the children are presenting and what they are saying. So what he's saying is, look, at an interim hearing, I appreciate allegations are made, but that doesn't mean we just sit there and uncritically accept them. We have to ask questions about these allegations, and there's nothing wrong with asking those questions. The judge is clearly sympathetic to the district judge in the lower court and says, look, he was entitled to ask questions about certain things, and he was entitled to take a critical view of mother's position. He was entitled to ask why she had moved so far away. He was entitled to note that the trigger for her move wasn't actually domestic abuse or didn't appear to be domestic abuse, but because mother thought father was stealing from work and she might get into trouble. He was entitled to note that up until the 6th of September, mother had actually said she had no concern about father having unsupervised day in contact and then seemed to change her mind after the Kafka safeguarding letter. But despite that sympathy, he still found that the judge had fallen into error in a number of respects. And he noted that A, while the judge was entitled to take a critical or even skeptical approach to the allegations of domestic abuse, it was not open to him to effectively dismiss them summarily or set them entirely to one side for the purpose of making interim orders. B, as a result, the district judge did not engage with PD12J until very much as an afterthought once he had determined the interim orders he would make, which I referred to earlier, he very much did apply it as an afterthought. C, the district judge dismissed the question of risk without sufficient analysis or information, particularly on the more 
subtle question of coercible controlling behaviour and the potential emotional and psychological impact. D, the district judge gave insufficient weight to the Kafka's recommendations based on limited information, though they were, and failed to explain why he was departing from them in such a wholesale way. And finally, while addressing the welfare checklist in relation to the question of removal, the district judge did not apply it holistically in relation to the question of return to the father or spending time with him. So say for one of the grounds, all of the grounds of appeal were successful. We then have a discussion in the judgment about next steps. We obviously don't know what's going to happen next in this case, which is really frustrating. We see judgments that are pulled out of a particular set of proceedings. And we don't know the before or after of them, which is really, really annoying. And the judge says, well, my provisional view is I want CAFCAS to make urgent inquiries. I want them to talk to the kids and to consider the impact on them of seeing their dad. Until CAFCAS does those inquiries, there can't be any direct contact. Though maybe the parties can think about indirect contact. After we get some further advice from Kafkas, we'll have a think about contact. And mother should explain why she says she can't come back to Dorset and move into the family home. And she needs to particularise her allegations of domestic abuse. And in three weeks, we'll have another hearing. We'll come back. We'll think about moving father out of the home, moving mum and the children back in and any protective measures to stop father coming to the home or talking to mum. The judge makes a comment at the very end of the judgment about this practice that Kafkas has fallen into of not interviewing both parents, which very much gives the sense that they're only listening to what one parent has said. And he also raised the concern that Kafkas is leaving it until the hearing to speak to the parties. And he was worried that parents in that pressurised environment might miss out on safety issues, which is definitely true in my experience. What I'll say is there are mixed views, I'd say, on the usefulness of safeguarding letters amongst practitioners because they are often quite perfunctory. They don't include a lot of analysis, not least because Kafka doesn't know the truth of what the parties are saying, so their hands are tied. But I've often come to court to find that the interviews haven't happened and they say, oh, you know what, never mind, we'll just have a quick chat with the parents before we come into court now and I'll give you my safeguarding recommendations in court, which is fine, but the parents get anxious and they get nervous and the safeguarding interviews are very important because that's where the parent tells the Kafka officer about what the issues are and what they're worried about. And things get missed if they are put under that sort of pressure. And things that Kafka should know about, they may end up not knowing about before they make their recommendations. So what do you think, Maddie? I mean, I, I think the reason I really wanted to talk about this case is to flag up the difficulties in interim hearings in knowing what the right thing is to do when we know very little about what's actually gone on. Certainly my view is, and I'd be interested to hear your view on it, is that at the beginning of proceedings, the balance of power very much lies with the parent making the allegations. And what this means is that it takes months and months usually before the allegations can be resolved and contact can be progressed because of court delays, because of judicial unavailability. It's not unusual for me to see cases going on for months coming up to a year before we get to a fact-finding hearing which could determine the allegations. And of course, if there are allegations to be resolved which impact on the children's welfare, we have to settle those before we put the children in risky situations. But if after the fact-finding hearing, the allegations are not proved, we've ended up in a situation where the parents seeking contact has spent an enormous amount of time not having contact only for the allegations to not be proved and for the abuse to not be proved. It's really difficult and I don't really know what the way around it is. Yeah, I think my view is there's two issues here. The first issue is the unilateral move very far away. And the second issue is the is the contact and what happens when one parent makes allegations. I think dealing with the second issue first, it's very, very common that parents come to court and say, I don't want my child to have contact with this person because they have perpetrated on me a level of domestic abuse which is unsafe and which will cause risk to the children. That is often communicated to Kafkas and Kafkas will then often say there should be no contact or there should be limited 
supervised some sort of contact, depending on how long it's been since the child has seen the parent who is accused of being a perpetrator, etc. That, I think, is a very difficult issue, because as you rightly say, it means the balance of power lies entirely with any party who chooses to make allegations. It also means the balance of power lies with the parent who has the children. And I think that's something that people forget, is that courts very rarely, and I, that's why I was so shocked when you were telling me about this judgment, very rarely change residents outside of significant concerns that we've explored previously. So if you are a parent who is leaving a relationship and you take the children with you, it is more likely that you will end up as the primary carer of the children. That's establishing a status quo. So there are some power imbalances in the first hearing. The question for the court, as this appeal highlights, is what is the risk to the children? We're not talking about whether there will be harm. We're talking about what is the risk of harm or what is the potential impact on the children if contact orders are made at this stage? And there are lots of practitioners with lots of views on this. And I've spoken to lots of people about this because I am not necessarily of the view that no contact is always the answer, even if the allegations are extremely serious. And that is partly because of the parallels that I see in public law, where parents are accused of very serious things and are still required and, and allowed to maintain their ongoing relationship with the child through supervised contact. And B, because that is a real risk to a child. Losing that relationship, especially if a child is young, can be very impactful at a young age. So I am, I am, I think, an advocate for supervised contact at an early stage whilst allegations are being resolved. And if those allegations are resolved in favour of the accuser or in favour of the perpetrator, whatever it might be, the court then looks at how contact should be progressed or managed or maintained. The first issue that I mentioned is this move away. And I think that does make it more difficult because if the court had endorsed that move at an early stage, they are effectively saying to this mother, in fact, and also to the father, no matter what happens, even if none of this is true, your children are now six hours away. So it's going to be practically very, very difficult for you to have contact anyway, be it supervised, be it direct, be it indirect, whatever. You know, it's very difficult for that to be maintained. And I think that is a very different issue to whether the children should be allowed contact with their father. They need to put parents in a position where they can have contact if in the future that is what is ordered. And I think endorsing the move would have made that practically impossible. I mean, he's not going to travel six hours for one hour's supervised contact. He's not going to do that. And that effectively reduces his ability to, to exercise that right. So I think the move is a, is a more complex issue. But in terms of contact at an interim stage, it's about risk. And if, if anything that an accuser says is right, then the children are exposed to risk and the court needs to manage that risk be it through supervision be it through no contact be it through letters cards video contact whatever it might be although video contact I think actually can be more risky than direct supervised contact because the parent has to facilitate it and that causes problems but that's what the court has to do at the first stage is analyze the risk in a proper proportionate way and say if taking this case at its highest if all of this is true what is the risk to the children How, can it be managed if none of this is true what is the risk to the children can it be managed and I think the answer is normally supervised contact isn't it but you can't put parents in a position where the court says, OK, you can move six hours away and we're not going to make you come back because we're essentially putting the cart before the horse and the case is over before it started. Because either way it goes, your children will be six hours away and you won't be able to see them on weekends or after schools or whatever. So I do think that is a more, more tricky issue. Yeah, I think the point you make about the parallels in, in care proceedings is such an important one because care practitioners will know that under 
section 34 of the Children Act, the local authority when a child is in their care has a duty to allow reasonable contact with the child's parents. And that's what we're always arguing about when we're in court representing parents in care proceedings as we're saying, well, there's absolutely no reason why this parent can't have at least three times a week supervised contact in a contact centre. So it does seem completely logically incoherent that an almost reverse situation applies in private law proceedings where the parent has to effectively prove themselves before contact is considered appropriate or safe. And I don't know how those two approaches can be reconciled, which I think is a super important point. Yeah, we see it all the time. And I do, I must admit, it's one of my favourite submissions to make when I'm arguing on behalf of parents who do not have access to their children is, you know, how is this possibly not a full management of this risk? No matter what the risk is, how can it not be managed by professional supervision? Because that must be right. That must be right. And outside of a teenager who may have particular views about wanting to go to a contact centre, and in fact, contact centres can be quite clinical for children who are older. If you've got sort of younger children under sort of eight, they can work very well and they offer a safe, neutral environment for the relationship to be fostered without any outside environmental factors that can cause the risk that the, the other parent is worried about. So, yeah, I do struggle with it. And I think the family court needs to address that at some point, that imbalance, because there is also a statutory presumption in favour of contact in the Children Act for private children anyway. So the law is there, the law's the same, but the way it's applied is totally different. And I think maybe it's something for Kafkas to think about. Maybe it's something for the courts to think about. But I think it, it, as you say, it does strike a sort of illogical chord. I mean, having said that, while there is a statutory presumption under Section 12A of the Children Act 1989, Paragraph 7 of Practice Direction 12J says that in proceedings relating to a child arrangements order, the court presumes that the involvement of a parent in a child's life will further the child's welfare unless there is evidence to the contrary. So the court must in every case consider carefully whether the statutory presumption applies, having particular regard to any allegation or admission of harm by domestic abuse to the child or parent or any evidence indicating such harm or risk of harm. So, yes, the law is there but it is qualified by practice direction 12J in cases of domestic abuse. I must imagine that's something I wanted to pick up on from, from what you were talking about, is this idea that the allegations can in some way be supported by third party evidence. I see that quite a lot. You see, you sometimes see safeguarding letters that have a list of chronologies from local authorities about domestic incidents, about police call outs, about shouting, about mother being harmed, father being harmed, children being harmed. That happens a lot. And so I think the court needs to be slightly more bold in saying, actually, yeah, OK, these, these allegations might be a load of rubbish. But at the moment, the only evidence that I have before me is that there is a history of at least conflict between these parents. It may not be the conflict, the kind of conflict that the accuser is saying it is or that the perpetrator accepts it is. But there is a conflict here. There is constant police call outs. There is a history. There is a whatever the court should be more bold in using that evidence. And I think that it's there in the Kafkas letter. It can be used. It is evidence. And I think sometimes courts just sort of say, well, you know, the allegations are made, the allegations are denied. Let's just call the whole thing off until we have a fact finding. And actually, there is a more nuanced way to do it. I think if you recognise that there is, you know, prima facie evidence to support these allegations, which will be properly challenged in due course. You know, the court has to form an interim opinion. And I don't think that's the wrong way to do it. Yeah, so I think we've discussed that case in as much detail as we can in the time available. Maddie, do you want to crack on with yours? Yes, thankfully, my case this week is quite short. It's called Reed W and Others, but actually on the right up, it's called Lancashire County Council, MFW and Lancashire Clinical Commissioning Group. So it is a case, a very short judgment on a long running case about 
W, who is a boy aged 12, who is the subject of a care order application by Lancashire County Council. The application first came before the courts in March 2021, and Mr Justice Hayden says there has been a number of interim hearings which is unnecessary to review in this judgment. W, the boy, has serious disabilities arising from a genetic defect. He requires the use of a wheelchair at all times, has several diagnoses which include epilepsy and a condition known as aerophagia, which is a swallowing disorder. He has been known to self-harm and occasionally to hold his breath to the point where he loses consciousness. This raft of disabilities naturally necessitates W having one-to-one care at all times during the day and two-to-one care for moving and handling. His breath holding can cause hypoxic episodes. That's just where you don't have any oxygen. He also has a mic key button device, which is a gastronomy feeding tube to his abdomen. So profoundly disabled little boy who's being cared for by professional carers delivered in a care package by the private care group. Essentially, the issue in the case, the reason it's come before the court, is that the care group who are delivering the care package for W have encountered what they say is a great deal of resistance and what they perceive to be combative interference with their staff by the boy's parents. There's a number of bullet points listed in particular. What was said of the parents is that they have insisted on having oversight of the training of carers at all times. They have required the removal of two carers from their position on unreasonable grounds. They alleged without proper foundation, serious misconduct by the paediatric nurse with oversight of the boy's care package and demanded her deregistration. They have declined to cooperate with a review of W's care package, despite having complained that he is not adequately supported by trained healthcare staff. And on the 3rd of March 2021, which precipitated the allegation, the boy suffered a hypoxic episode in which his saturation levels dropped to below 85%. The threshold for calling emergency services during such an episode, according to his care package, was three minutes. The parents allegedly refused to permit the care staff on shift to call an ambulance immediately after the threshold had been reached, causing him to remain dangerously desaturated for 10 minutes. So the local authority subsequently applied for a care order on the basis that the parents are not able to basically work constructively with the professionals to allow the child to be looked after appropriately within his care package. On the 4th of March 2021, the agency delivering the care indicated to W and his family that they would no longer be prepared to offer a service because of the magnitude of these difficulties. This decision was triggered by the incident on the 3rd of March about the hypoxic episode and the mother apparently refusing to allow carers to call the ambulance until 10 minutes after the hypoxic episode. The parents were said to have been distrustful of the care staff who said they felt undermined and belittled. The parents' behaviour at the hospital was also said to be highly concerning, although they were described as appropriate and respectful on the ward. The parents come to court and Mr Justice Hayden says they were, in my assessment, genuinely shocked when the care agency withdrew. They considered that they had an excellent working relationship. Mother acknowledged that she had been very emotive, but she emphasised her concern and passion. She also recognised that she was a prolific emailer. When W was born, he was given a limited life expectancy, which he has already vastly exceeded. Mother believes that her advocacy of W's interests and rights has played a large part in him thriving to the extent that he was. I have no doubt, at least to a very significant extent, that she is correct. So... This is the tension that we have, and it's a tension that a lot of family lawyers will be familiar with, not necessarily within the context of profoundly disabled children, but I think it does come to the fore more often in those cases. Hayden recognises that it is a sad fact that the family court from time to time encounter parents of profoundly sick children or children with disabilities who become drawn into high-octane conflict with the raft of professionals who seek to support their children. Many judges over the years have speculated why this scenario arises with such regularity, Sometimes it may be a displacement of loss and accompanying anger, which lands upon the medical and other professionals. Often it may reflect a parent's sense of powerlessness. Mr Justice Headley described the challenges faced by parents in these circumstances in a case called RE-LBH, a local authority, and KJ in 2007. 
in which he said, perhaps one can refine the issue by indicating what the law cannot be. It cannot be the case that a single parent exposes herself to a compulsory state intervention in family life simply on the grounds that a particular child's needs are beyond the capacity of one parent or indeed even two parents, however assiduously they devote themselves to the care of the child. The only exception to that could be where a child can properly be said to be beyond parental control. He's talking now about the elements under Section 31 that permit the court to make a care order. That is either that the care delivered by the parents is not what would reasonably be expected or the child is beyond parental control and the parents have to have the children removed. Several years later, uh, Mr Justice Headley returned to the point, which was plainly of concern to him, and Mr Justice Hayden says, if I may say so, reflected his characteristic and compassionate insight into the challenges faced by families of profoundly disabled children with complex needs. What Mr Justice Hayden goes on to say is that what happened in this case is that he instructed Dr Kate Helen, who is a consultant chartered psychologist, And she delivered a psychological assessment of both parents in the hope of better understanding some of the interactions with professionals, with the hope of achieving a better understanding of some of their interactions with professionals. Dr. Helen's work is both well known to this court and highly regarded. This said, I did not expect to receive a report that so comprehensively captured the dynamic of this kind of conflict. It is, in my judgment, a landmark report, the analysis of which requires wider dissemination. Today, this interim hearing, which was anticipated would be contested, has been resolved by agreement of the parties. So, Dr. Kate Helen is, as I said, a consultant chartered psychologist and psychotherapist, an associate fellow of the British Psychological Society. She trains a range of practitioners, including clinical psychologists, lawyers and staff in the charity sector. She undertook a comprehensive report, as I said, that Mr. Justice Hayden describes as landmark and sets out what she feels the problems are between these particular parents and the care deliverers in relation to W. Dr. Helen did not consider that either parent had any sign of mood-related problems, personality disorder, or serious mental illness. The mother was assessed as balanced, thoughtful, with considerable psychological resilience. There was nothing to suggest that she has health anxiety or abnormal illness behaviour. Rather, her psychological state had deteriorated in consequence of her child's health needs and the demands placed on her, particularly as those needs had become more complex. The mother's mental health had become acute when W had a crisis involving a bowel interception and brain hemorrhage in December 2019. At the time, Dr. Helen considered that the mother would have met the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. However, she would now no longer meet that threshold. Nonetheless, this acute episode left a legacy of a heightened level of resting anxiety. And as Dr. Helen points out, in clear and unambiguous terms, this anxiety is rational and based in the cumulative reality of life-threatening and medical events in her son's life and the uncertainty of his condition and prognosis. The mother's response to the very challenging circumstances she faced are said to be normal, and Dr. Helen would expect a similar response in even the most psychologically robust person. In the father's interview, he described how he was worried about his son for most of the time. When he is anxious, Dr. Helen says he worries excessively and adheres to routine and to rigid lifestyle practices, which help him to feel more in control. Dr. Helen goes on to describe how W's needs and extensive disabilities cast the parents' own lives deep into the background. She says, They live with ongoing, intense, chronic and acute stress, day-to-day anxiety about his survival, the uncertainty regarding his future and their limited sense of control, at times in the face of complex commissioning and care medical delivery systems. It's accepted the couple has different coping mechanisms. The mother has attempted to take control when faced with bewildering uncertainty and what have been on occasion life and death situations. Dr. Helen is clear that in these circumstances, this is a psychologically healthy way of responding to adversity. The father is more avoidant, though particularly adversely affected when mother becomes overwhelmed. Inevitably, all this has placed a huge strain on their relationship, though they strike me as committed to each other. So, Dr. Helen was clear that the court would not be best assisted by evaluating the issues in terms of the parents' perceived failures or any mental health difficulties. 
She says it requires a recognition by the professionals that these are ordinary parents dealing with extraordinary circumstances. She considered that the entire etiology of these challenging circumstances is better understood within a different paradigm and should be considered from a systemic or organisational perspective. Rather than looking to change the parents, I recommend a systemic intervention drawn from organisational psychology, psychodynamic psychotherapy, group analysis and systems theory. The intervention would assist all agencies and the parents to understand the dynamic processes that have led to the current difficulties, to step back from mutual blame and recrimination, to establish working practices which will contain and diminish sensitivities and optimise collaboration between the different parts of the system. Mr Justice Hayden says, already it is clear to me before any work is undertaken that the exposition of this dynamic has helped both the care workers and the parents better to understand the challenges that each face. The court is all too acutely aware of the colossal pressure placed on limited resources. This is a day-to-day reality for the medical and caring professions. It has endured for many years, but has been cast into stark relief by the pandemic. Dr Helen considers this backdrop serves further to inflame the environment around W. Perspectives have become polarised and difficult to placate. Dr. Helen's proposals are predicated on promoting mutual understanding and diminishing mutual blame. At risk of repetition, I emphasise that even though the work has not yet started, the manifest sense of the approach is compelling and has already diluted the emotional intensity and significantly bridged the polarity that has impeded progress in this case for many months and which has been undoubtedly inimicable to W's care. And that's it. Mr Justice Hayden says it's important to emphasise that the provision not being what it would be reasonable to expect a parent to give is not to be regarded as an abstract or hypothetical test, but must be evaluated by reference to the circumstances the parent is confronting, i.e. what would it be reasonable to expect of a person in these particular circumstances, recognising that in a challenging situation, many of us behave in a way in which might not objectively be viewed as reasonable. The test is not to be construed in a vacuum, nor applied judgmentally by reference to some gold standard of parenting, which few, if any, can achieve. I think this is a landmark judgment. It's one of the most watershed moments I've ever seen because it is taking completely away any suggestion of the adversarial relationship between the local authority and the parents when looking at what is best for a child and is using psychological techniques, psychotherapy, group work, systems theory to try and establish what is the best way for these two bodies of people, the parents of this boy who clearly are devoted to him and love him very, very much and are horribly anxious about him all the time, and the medical professionals who are in a position to properly deliver his care, how can we optimise that relationship and how can we move that relationship to a point of mutual benefit? I've never seen a judgment like this before. I think it's amazing. What do you think? Yeah, it's a judgment that's going to resonate with so many parents and with so many practitioners, because the parents of disabled children have spent their whole lives fighting fighting to keep their child well, but also fighting for resources, fighting with local authorities about the the kinds of things that they need to ensure optimal outcomes for their children. They are used to fighting. And so it's easy to dismiss those parents as unchild focused or hysterical or prone to histrionics or just difficult. And this assessment from Dr. Helen, who I've never heard of before, is such a kind, empathetic assessment and I don't know Dr Helen but I imagine a lot of practitioners will be sliding into her DMs immediately. What I think would have been interesting is if we have the report itself because that's not been made available. I think it would be fantastic if we could get an anonymized version of that report just so we can see precisely the analysis and see what kinds of parallels can be drawn with the cases that we get day in day out. Yeah there, there is a chunk of the report in the judgment of paragraph 16 for anyone who's interested I only read out the bits that are emphasised by um, the judge but no the full report's not available I imagine because it contains so much 
personal information but I think it's really it's a really lovely judgment to read and I think it's also really something that you and I have talked about before in terms of one of the most complex things about family law is that it involves emotions and responses and family dynamics and those are psychological issues those are issues that different people deal with in different ways with different coping mechanisms it doesn't mean that just because one person deals with something differently to how you would or the professional would or the judge would that they are wrong to do that. And I think it's really a good baseline to start working within children, particularly public law children and court of protection work. What is the baseline for how people respond? It's different and you need to allow people the space to cope with things, how they're going to cope with them. And yes, mother was a prolific emailer. I'm sure she was quite difficult to work with, but she was terrified for her son and her son had outlived his life expectancy by, by many, many years because of what was perceived by the court and by her as her clear intervention and advocacy. And that's amazing. So there is always room for parents in these discussions. There is always room for the input of families and those who love this child, alongside those who are physically and logistically able to deliver the proper care. And having a good relationship between those two looks to me to be something that would be totally invaluable into promoting a child's welfare. So yeah, worth a read. It's only 20 paragraphs and it's fab. Lucy Reed, who's a very well-known family barrister, tweeted about this judgment and she says, I dare say it has wider application than just to the parents of disabled children. We need to think about and understand the responses of parents in their context, which may involve chronic stress and trauma. And I agree with that. I think we have to think more broadly about the expectations we have of parents in court proceedings, particularly in care proceedings and in court proceedings, are so unrealistic sometimes. Professionals expect parents to think the way that they think and they completely forget what it's like to put themselves in those parents' shoes and to try and see how they might feel if they were in that situation. And I think that this judgment really encourages people to remember that we are the lawyers, we are not the parties, and we don't know what it's like for the parties. It is unimaginably traumatic and distressing to be in court proceedings. And this judgment is not one that's just going to be limited to the parents of disabled children. And I hope that it informs the way that we generally work with parents and children across the board. Yeah, a must read in my view for anyone who's working with parents and professionals on a regular basis. Okay, book, podcast, talk recommendations. What have you got this week? I listened to a really, really good podcast episode on BBC analysis about parental alienation, which came out on the 25th of October. It's truly excellent. It's extremely balanced. It really tries to unpick the difficult issues around this polarizing subject we talked about in the last episode. Everyone on it talks a lot of sense. My colleague on the Transparency Project, Dr. Julie Doughty, is one of the people who's interviewed, and she has the most amazing, calming audiobook voice that I wish could just talk me to sleep every night. And the programme unpicks the tension between those alleging parental alienation and those saying it's effectively used by abusers to shield themselves against allegations of domestic abuse. And Julie talks about the history of parental alienation and how in the 80s, a psychologist called Richard Gardner observed children making allegations of sexual abuse against fathers. And he said the only reason that they were saying it is because these children were being brainwashed by the mothers. And he called it parental alienation syndrome. And the programme says, well, that syndrome has been widely discredited. But as we know, the term parental alienation has endured. What I found really interesting about the programme, and maybe it's something we should have talked about more in the last episode, is the industry of so-called parental alienation experts, which has developed in recent years. There are a number of experts instructed in the family courts who are not 
clinical psychologists or who do not work in a field which is subject to statutory regulation. And a couple of weeks ago, some of our listeners might know that there were media reports of a dispute in a family case in Croydon, where the mother in the case successfully argued that the psychologist instructed wasn't properly regulated, and the judge determined that another expert be appointed, and the judge declined to name the expert in that case. But this is an issue that comes up over and over and over again about the lack of regulation of experts who float around the family courts and whose evidence has enormous implications for child arrangements. Jamie Craig, who's a clinical psychologist, was interviewed for the programme and he says there's no way of preventing someone who's unregulated from continuing to practice if they do something dodgy. So he says, I can be struck off because I'm a clinical psychologist. If I do something inappropriate, something that amounts to malpractice, I can't work anymore. But if someone who is unregulated gives evidence and does something inappropriate, there is no public protection. And Jamie Craig also says, if you start from the position of a narrow focus of parental alienation, you bring about a danger of confirmation bias. So he says, children will do things that might look like a sign of alienation. And if your assessment is a tick list of signs and symptoms of alienating behaviours, you narrow down the explanations. And the presenter, I think, Sonia Soda, sums it up by saying, to the man with a hammer, everything is a nail. So if you've made your professional reputation on arguing for X or Y, it's inevitable that you will be more inclined to say that a case must be X or Y. And that's the difficulty with parental alienation experts, the lack of regulation, and the fact that they have made their careers out of saying, we deal with parental alienation, we see parental alienation and everything, and we need to tackle parental alienation. So it's probably likely that they will come into a case thinking this probably is parental alienation. I should also say that I was in Jersey earlier this month where the president of the family division gave a speech where he said, pseudoscience, which is not based on any established body of knowledge, will be inadmissible in the family court. Now, I don't know if he's specifically alluding to parental alienation here. I mean, who knows? But yeah, really big concern. Unregulated experts wandering around the family courts, having their expertise taken very seriously. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think it's something that we did touch briefly on last week, but I think it's good to make that clear. I, as I've, I think I've said to you personally before, but not on the show, that I am potentially sceptical about the idea that parental alienation is separate from any other familial dynamic problem in the family court. It is a psychological problem. It needs a psychological solution. I don't think calling it something completely different and having a whole body of work surrounding it about something to make it seem like it's not just about conflict between parents is necessarily the right thing. I think it is ultimately a psychological global issue for the family that needs to be addressed in in that way. So uh, yeah, I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that parental alienation is in any way unique or different to any other conflict within the family courts. I think it has been treated as such because we've given it a name and we've given it all of these particular terms, but actually I'm not sure I really think that it's something that a clinical psychologist or a global family assessment couldn't solve. Yeah, and and I talked about on the last episode my discomfort even with the term parental alienation because it seems to be pathologizing something that is just, it could just be bad behavior. You know, we'll be trying to give a syndrome or a name or a a condition to something that is like any other sort of behavior that can be analyzed in in the same way as we analyze any other sort of behavior. Maybe we should just call it what it is. Um, You know, move away from the term parental alienation and call it what it is. Is a child being groomed to reject the other parent for no good reason by one parent? Is the child being manipulated or being fed information which is 
absolutely untrue about the other parent with a view to them not having a relationship with that parent. I see no difficulty with why we can't call a spade a spade rather than using a term which I think is becoming increasingly loaded and unhelpful. Agreed. Maybe we should make a pact not to use the phrase parental alienation on the podcast anymore. We'll see how we do with that one. I have got a couple this week. My first is the transparency report from the president, which I was going to go into some detail about, but I won't because I know that you haven't read it in full yet. So we can discuss that next week and the implications of it. For anyone who is interested, this is a alert for your required reading for the next podcast will be the transparency report published by the president and also if you want a whistle stop tour then the seeing invisible elephants blog post by the transparency project is also very very helpful and sets out the themes there are some key themes that really do stand out and i think it's a real testament to our president andrew mcfarlane who has done huge amounts of work on this under intense pressure of a system during a pandemic and has really really shone through his compassion and his ability has really shone through in that so we're very lucky to have him my second recommendation is a blog called suspicious minds i don't know if you've ever heard of this you will have done yeah i mean i i read it all the time it is like my main source for family yeah it's incredible and i i only realized a few weeks ago that not everyone knows what it is i mean i use it literally every day but i didn't know that a lot of people had never heard of it so if you haven't you have to read it. It's absolutely fantastic. The tagline is law, nonsense and the nonsense of law. And it's written about mostly child protection, but family law in general, and essentially writes blog posts about interesting cases. It's where I get a lot of my cases for the podcast from. There's a lot of stuff on there about niche areas. Like I was using it the other day for adverse inferences when a parent refuses to take a hair strand test. I've used it before for rights, uh, the application to discharge an intervener, all of these kind of niche applications that come up at the bar. There is a blog post on all of them. I don't know who writes it. It is anonymous, but whoever it is, you're incredible and doing incredible work. And anyone who is interested in the geeky niche areas of family law should definitely read it. Um, and any practitioners should sign up to the email um, notifications because you get fresh content delivered every week and it's amazing and fantastic so it's s-u-e-s-s-p-i-c-i-o-u-s minds.com and it's brilliant final segment tweet of the week maddie so um i just wanted to highlight a tweet thread this week because we're almost at the end of black history month and i don't think we've acknowledged that really to its full extent so i wanted to highlight a tweet thread that i saw um yesterday which is by matthew Ryder qc who is a barrister at matrix And he has set out, um, well, he says, um, we're almost at the end of Black History Month. So I thought I'd do one more thread on some little known but brilliant senior figures at the bar. I wanted to highlight those black barristers who are excelling in a field that may seem less glamorous or get less attention. And he sets out all of the basically amazing black barristers at the bar. And I'm not going to go through it in detail because I want you to read it from Matthew because it's not my work. But I would really recommend going to his page and having a look at it. He also does a really good one about barristers who wore black hair and how black hair was utilized at the bar as a means of representing black people and um, so that was a really interesting one as well so please do check out his twitter page it's it's really interesting and it, it's got a lot of stuff about black barristers and black history month at the bar so have a look at that it's at m rider qc yeah and predictably i'm sure people have told him from having read that twitter thread that hey there are lots of other black barristers i mean of course there are of course there are he's not highlighted every black barrister under the sun that's 
everyone's responsibility to give a platform to the amazing black barristers who certainly don't get the recognition that they deserve and who've had to overcome a lot more than the rest of us and we haven't had to deal with the prejudices they've had to encounter at the bar so please do the same and try and use your platforms to promote other fantastic black barristers don't wait for Matthew to do the work for you My tweet of the week is from Chloe Branton at Chloe L. Branton, and she wrote, I received some really lovely and encouraging feedback from a judge on a case recently. It's amazing the impact some positive words can have on you. I've now set a goal to regularly tell people when I think they've done a great job in the hope it makes others feel how I did. I know that a lot of our listeners are aspiring barristers, aspiring family barristers, and I thought this was an interesting tweet to touch on because as a self-employed barrister, you don't get a lot of feedback. You don't get a lot of reassurance that you're doing things right. No one is there to go, hey, well done on that case. Um, Occasionally a solicitor or a client might send you a line, but most of the time everyone's so busy, we just bump along from case to case to case. And actually it's so lovely to have even the briefest bit of feedback from an opponent, from a judge, from a client, just to say, hey, you did really well here, because this is a very lonely job And we often don't know what we're doing because we don't have managers or supervisors. From the point we become tenants, we were just told to get on with it and left to it. And it's really nice just to know I'm not the world's worst barrister. I mean, I know I'm not, but I think it's a profession of people who have extremely high unhealthy expectations of themselves and constantly feel like they're falling short of those expectations. I think I have far more days in court where I think, oh, you were just so bad there, Malika. Then I have courts where I come out and think you were great. And that's entirely in my own head. But I do think that a little bit of external validation that I'm doing okay goes a really long way. And my friend Emma Trevitt told me once that she has a folder called a nice things folder on her email. And that's something I have as well now. And every time a judge sends a nice bit of feedback or a silk sends a nice bit of feedback, I put it into my folder. And when I'm having a bad day and when I think that I'm doing absolutely rubbish on a case, I read that folder and think, actually, I'm doing all right. Yeah, I agree. It's not a profession you should get into if you need constant validation because, spoiler alert, you're not going to get it. I did that. Did, this did happen to me once when I was a, like, two months into my tenancy and I did a very difficult, very long fact-finding against a very senior barrister. And I was horrified and very scared and it took ages and it all went awfully and there was all sorts of cross-examination uphill and downdale it was a very long and complicated case and at the end the judge asked me to come back into court and I thought oh god this is it I'm going to be disbarred it's happening they're coming for me and she just looked up to me and said well done you did well and I was like oh God, like, honestly, I felt like a weight had been lifted because I was about to go home and cry about it. And it was just, it was really made all the difference. Um, And I do think about that a lot. The fact that she took the time to do that really did cheer me up. And opponents do it as well. And I think opponents doing it is really lovely. Obviously not in front of clients and things like that, but it is quite nice to get an email after a case just saying, you know, it was a pleasure to work with you. I look forward to doing it again. I think it's just, it makes life so much easier in what is, what can be a very combative and adversarial lifestyle and often a very lonely lifestyle so I encourage everyone to do that if you think someone's doing a good job just tell them you know your size will not be diminished by lifting someone else up so I believe in doing that for everyone on that lovely encouraging note which is quite unusual because we very very rarely end on lovely encouraging notes we're going to sign off for episode two and we'll see you all in a fortnight see you soon bye